The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 587 for Sunday, January 20th. 20th? That's 10th, 2016. <laughs> Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show that people have described as car talk for Apple geeks, answering your questions, but a little more politely, we're told, than the car talk guys used to be. Sponsors for this episode include Gazelle at Gazelle.com, Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash geek, where you can learn all about PDF pen for the Mac, Carbon Copy Cloner, where coupon code MGG10OFF saves you 10%. We've got a special link for that in the episode coming up and Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG where coupon code MGG saves you 10%. We'll talk more about all of them shortly here and here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in rainy, dreary, we're never going to see any snow this season. Fairfield, Connecticut. This is John F. Braun. Have you not gotten any uh, snow yet, John F. Braun? We have not. Oh, As okay. Said, right now it's, it's a, uh, uh, you know, we got a dusting last year, uh, some minor flurries, but um, uh, as of yet. Oh, I see. When you say this year, you mean 2016, not uh, not this winter, which also would include the latter portion of, of 2015. And, and well, yes. uh, well, even 2015, uh, like I said, there was, I, I think in November, we had a little dusting. But uh, since then, nope, no, no snow on the ground. Hmm. Yeah, we, I've still got snow on the ground. We had one snowstorm that dropped about six inches of snow uh, a few days after Christmas. And then that's been it. But with the rain today, if it keeps up, uh, it'll wash much of it away. Yep. And I saw some on my way back from a uh, uh, fun filled CES. I saw snow on the ground in uh, ORD or yep. Chicago. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, sure. and even uh, Hartford where I uh, landed at my mm. favorite regional airport, Bradley. But none here, so uh, knock on wood or knock on ice or snow. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm hoping for at least a snow-free week because uh, Lisa and I are heading off for a little R&R. Um, we're going to go see fish play for a few nights in uh, Mexico, in Playa del Carmen, I think. I don't know. Ooh, yeah. Man. Yeah, that's next weekend. So actually the show, the, the, the next show, Mac Geek Up 588, will come out on Tuesday, the 19th after John and I recorded on Tuesday, the 19th. So we got back from Vegas though. And, uh, and we saw some things at CES. There will be many, many things that you and I will talk about um, in the coming weeks and, and months that we saw at CES. But I just wanted to start with some trends that, that certainly that I saw. And if you saw any trends, John would love to, uh, to hear your thoughts on them too. And I'm putting you on the spot because we didn't really prepare for uh, for this, although we were both out there. I'll spot you back, bro. But, but yeah, I, I uh, go. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, on. one of the, you know, and, and so it's important to note that CES is a massive show. There's no way one human could go and even just see every bit of it in the time that it's there, let alone actually absorb and process everything that's there. So, what I've noticed, you know, people would come up to me, you know, throughout the week and say, hey, see anything cool at the show? 
And at one point I realized the only correct answer to that is, well, it depends on what kind of a geek you are. And because your preferences, or at least for me, my preferences will guide me towards the things that I'm interested in. And then, yes, there's lots of cool stuff. So the first trend that I noticed this year, and I actually noticed it ahead of time, I guess. I mean, if I if I rewind, I can I can see that I noticed it ahead of time, although I wasn't really aware of it, is that 2016 is going to be a year of much like significant improvements in routers in the home and we and it already has started sort of toward the end of of 2015 but there's so many companies working on really impressive features in their routers that as impressive as they are for us geeks what they'll mean to people in their homes is you buy a a new router you plug it in and magically it takes care of everything. You just have coverage everywhere you need it. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, of course, and they're all very geeky and technical, but, but a big, if I, if I had to sum it all up, a big part of it is that the technology has now caught up to where we are. We've, we've been through several waves of, of Wi-Fi, right? When Wi-Fi first started, it was a very dumb protocol. It, you had a base station that just blasted out, radio waves and hopefully you had a client that could catch some and, and send some back. Right. And, and then slowly we've been, you know, as, as both devices and as we've learned about this. And when I say we, I mean, the industry has learned about how people are using Wi-Fi and the challenges of dealing with it in a home versus like a wide open area. The technology has actually been improved, but it takes time for those, those improvements to sort of, you know, permeate their way. Beamforming is is a good one to to talk about because it's it's one of these technologies. It's certainly not the only one, but it's one of these technologies where the client and the the, the client device, so your iPhone, your Mac, whatever, and the router can work together and do some intelligent decision making about the connection, right? And where you should be on the connection. What's cool is even though beamforming is only for 802.11 AC it actually is able to roll back to 2.4 gigahertz connections on those devices that support it for AC, because sometimes you're not going to be within range of, of a five gigahertz connection, but you've still got these smarts in the radios on both ends. And so they will roll that back. But again, not every router manufacturer has yet to put uh, beam forming in their 2.4 gigahertz implementation, but many have Apple's not one of them yet, but they might be, you know, it, it, it theoretically could be come out with a software update, but there's some other things in terms of intelligently handing off. If you do have extensions and that sort of thing, I think 2016 will be the year where we see wireless extensions that are truly wireless and actually work as opposed to what we've kind of experienced in the past. There's some cool stuff happening with power line. So I think Wi-Fi in the home smooths itself out. A lot of the problems that, that happen are, you know, you have, even if you have your router right there at the TV, a lot of people, maybe not us listening here, but maybe some, just connect their Apple TVs or their Roku boxes to the Wi-Fi, even though you could run a cable three feet and plug it into the router. If that's your scenario, run the cable for two reasons. A, it gives your Apple TV or your, your Roku a more reliable connection, but more importantly, it frees up your Wi-Fi for other things. So, so the, but but even if people do that, you know, there's some intelligent stuff happening with routers that 
um, routers and clients with Wi-Fi in general that will make these new routers that we'll see this year. And even some that we saw at the end of last year, like that Netgear R8500 that I talked about. Um, so that's that's one of the trends I saw. And it's, it's a good thing, right? Because it makes it easy and better. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that's one trend right. I saw. Well, to dovetail on that, so uh, I kind of actually, you know, it's funny because they had these areas at CES, but they also had vendors that I didn't expect just kind of pop up that I was able to stop by and, and say, hi, how's it going, guys? Uh, one of them was a, a TP-Link, which, of course, makes the uh, wonderful uh, Archer C9 that I have. Um, but they introduced, uh, and I saw this, and, you know, the rep pointed it out to me. I also told him that, you know, a lot of Mac cool kids uh, really like your, uh, you know, wireless routers. But, uh, dude, they, it, they were showing an 802.11AD. Yes, I said D. Not C, but D. Yeah, they were the only ones I saw with an 802.11AD. And that's Oh, you 60. saw them too? Well, of course, man. I told you. I, I just talked about routers. Yeah. yeah. 60 gigahertz, right? Yeah. And at first I was like, dude, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and allegedly 802.11AD with the 60 gigahertz can get up to, uh, in theory, 4.6 gigabits per second, which uh, that, that's nice. Albeit at very uh, short range, right? I mean, it, it just like two, from 2.4 to 5, you get higher bandwidth, shorter range as you mm-hmm. increase the frequency. Yeah. So I don't know how compelling it is for, for most people. Yeah, because, yeah, I said the same thing. I'm like, well, yeah, as you get the frequency up there, you got to be really close to it. But, uh, you know, he showed me a little speed test, you know, was doing live on the floor, uh, supposedly. And uh, it was getting, you know, sustained speeds over a gigabit per uh you know, not not at the advertised, but it was it was definitely sustained above uh, one gigabit per second. So that was. Uh, Again, I, you know, I can see that being part of that solution where, you know, if you if your router is in your living room, that may be where you have a lot of high bandwidth usage devices. And then right. right and then you don't you just don't have to worry about it. We all the problems that are being solved in, in sort of the router realm that I'm seeing are problems that we have been solving on this show for five years and, and many times in the same ways it, with the, the key difference being it's up to us humans to intelligently uh, design things and, and configure things to make sure we're getting the most out of our Wi-Fi. Whereas what's happening going forward is the routers and the devices are taking that responsibility away, not away from us, but off of our shoulders, which is better. Because you don't have to think about it. Even when you know about it, you don't know. Because with Wi-Fi, there's, I mean, it's wireless. You don't get to see everything that interferes with it. So it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that. The other thing I noticed, Dave, is that this seems to be now the age of HomeKit, which is Apple's, shall we say, API for home automation control type devices, is that anybody or, or a lot of people that were showing devices in that realm, which, you know, spans many categories, um, said, oh, yeah, and by the way, we're HomeKit compatible. I mean, I think one one of the aspects of that is, you know, it includes Siri integration. So, you know, anything that's specific to that device, Siri will understand. Um, but then also all these devices can, you know, talk to each other in a nice and uh, hopefully secure way. So that was, uh, was kind of cool. You know, I saw, you know, people offering, you know, door locks and... Uh, and again, is it, you know, it's a huge category, but yep. uh, 
anybody who could advertise compatibility with HomeKit did. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. If you're going to be getting anything that has to do with your home and your environment, um, you probably want to have HomeKit compatibility. Yeah, I maybe. I, I'm I'm not convinced of HomeKit yet. I'm 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 convinced of the concept of HomeKit, but it the market is so fragmented right now. There's so many different ways of interacting with this stuff. And although we have a cool stuff found coming up that anybody interested in home automation or home kit in terms of, you know, tying the home together will be very interested in, but I will tease that out and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, The problem is, you know, every one of these is a little bit proprietary and just because you have Macs and iPhones doesn't mean that, all of the stuff you already have, like your Nest thermostat or your older Ecobee thermostat or your, even your Honeywell thermostat, you know, th- th- these things are HomeKit compatible. They're not. Um, so it's it's a little, it's tough. The idea of HomeKit's great, though, to be able to just say, hey, and I don't want to do it because I don't want to drive you all crazy. But, you know, you tell your phone, uh, it's time to go to sleep and boom, it changes your temperature everywhere. You know, you set scenes is what HomeKit does for you. And and for a scene for like going to sleep, you might have it turn the heat up in your bedroom and down in your living room and kill the lights in your living room and set the color of the lights in your bedroom to something a little softer so that, you know what I mean? And then in the wake up scene, it might be a whole different thing and you Mm -hmm. can just trigger these from Siri. That's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's just you need everything to talk the same language and they don't. With the exception of this cool stuff found coming. And one thing that was new to me was um, so one vendor there and this this kind of surprised me and and it may have existed for a while um but uh um, lowe's was there and apparently lowe's has a uh uh, platform called iris that includes uh that's kind of their brand i guess or or, you know their api on top of a lot of home control products they were you know mostly you know the things i was looking at were uh well, no, there's a whole bunch of things that, that operate under it. Uh, you know, I was, I found it interesting. Uh, you know, there were a lot of vendors showing uh, various type of uh, access control, you know, AKA your, your door lock uh, that would fit into that. And that, that was kind of neat, you know, so rather than, you know, a simple mechanical key, which uh, for the most part is uh, for those that know what they're doing, easily hackable. They had, you know, a lot of uh, different, uh, oh boy, here they come. <laughs> oh, they're coming to get you, John. They don't want you talking about this. Apple says no home kit only. <laughs> but no, it was neat. Uh, you know, I spend uh, quite a bit of time talking to him about, uh, you know, just the, the whole environment and, and bringing it all together. Because I, I think, as you said, Dave, you know, the, the thing is fragmented right now. Yeah. And everybody is trying to uh, Apple and others like Lowe's are, are trying to, you know, bring these all together. So they all kind of play nice. Uh I think that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, it'd be, you know, be cool if, you know, I could, well, having them not talk to each other is bad and having them talk to each other is good. So, right. uh, no, it's good. Yeah. And again, there, there's some, I, I, in prepping the show yesterday, I found some cool stuff. So, or I didn't, you folks did, but I found it. So we'll talk, we'll, we've got more to talk about here and, and probably this year I would, I would expect this show will get, much deeper into home automation again. I mean, we did this seven, eight years ago when it was, you know, we were sort of dancing around it, but, um, 
it is cool. Like for me to be able to hit a button on my phone and have the studio start warming up. That's pretty cool. So. All right. Uh, John, why don't we, why, why don't we hear from our first couple of sponsors and then we'll answer some questions that work for you. Okay. All right. One of my favorite apps and one that I truly don't go a week without using in some capacity on either my Mac or on my iPhone is PDF pen from smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. They call PDF pen your Swiss army knife for PDF foo. And it's true. It's got all the basics covered, right? You want to fill out and sign forms. Great. You want to make edits to text. Listen to that. Make edits to text in a PDF. PDF pen can do it. You want to do highlighting. You want to turn a scanned PDF into actual editable text. Again, editable text. This is something I think is lost on people because you can edit with PDF pen, but it can also take the scan and using OCR turns that into editable text, right? And you can go all the way, of course, with redaction, right? You can redact things out of it. Even if you want to leave them, you know, leave a space in, you can redact it out. You can export to word. You can do page numbering, all kinds of stuff. And as I said, it also works in the iPhone too and syncs with iCloud. So you can have documents that you just sort of bounce back and forth. Makes it really easy to do the whole paperless office thing because you've got it all right there. PDF Pen Pro adds the ability to create your own interactive PDF forms and create PDFs from websites. This is a very cool thing because it's difficult sometimes to create a PDF, just one PDF of a website. PDF Pen Pro will do that. You can export to Excel and PowerPoint and PDF archive formats from PDF Pen Pro as well. You got to check this out. So go to smilesoftware.com slash geek. That's where it always starts with them. They set up that page for us, for you. Check it out. PDF Pen Pro at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Our thanks to Smile for sponsoring this episode. Another piece of software I can't live without is Carbon Copy Cloner from Bombic Software at B-O-M-B-I-C-H dot com slash M-G-G, where you get 10% off of this great piece of software. They will give you a free trial, and it's worth checking it out to make sure it works for you. But I can't imagine it wouldn't. We talk about this all the time on the show, whether they're a sponsor of that particular episode or not, simply because we use it, you use it, we all love it. This is the software that John and I both rely on for our first stage of backups, our clones. You should be relying on this too, because frankly, it works. Carbon Copy Cloner creates bootable backups of your Mac, including Apple's Recovery HD volume. They're totally non-proprietary, which means all it's doing is copying files. So if you can read the files on one Mac, you can read them on any Mac, regardless of whether that computer has Carbon Copy Cloner on it. This is beautiful. It is a clone, though, which means if you delete something from the source, by, by that nature, it's going to be deleted from the destination the next time a backup happens, except Carbon Copy Cloner lets you turn on a safety net. And that safety net allows for Carbon Copy Cloner to move those files out of the way. And you can set how big that's supposed to be or how long things are supposed to persist in it. Very, very handy. You can also turn on a verification function inside it to make sure that what you've backed up is what you think you've backed up. And the software can take care of that for you. You can schedule your backups to occur when you're not at your desk or not at your computer. Buy once, install on every computer in your house with Bombix household license. 
you got to check this out. Visit bombic.com slash MGG and then use the coupon code MGG 10 off. That's MGG 10 That'll save you 10% on this great piece of software. We use it. We love it. Hopefully you'll love it too. Check it out. I think you will. Bombic.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Bombic Software and Carbon Copy Cloner for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Let's move on. Let's go with Perry here. This is, uh, this is where it gets fun, I think, because this is where we can answer some questions. Perry writes, I have a question about using Safari. I feel that it might be one of those really dumb questions, but I cannot seem to find any resolution online. On some sites I visit, I get a warning stating your browser is outdated. Or when I click a link that downloads either a Windows or Mac file, depending on the platform, the site downloads the Windows.exe file. When I use Chrome on the very same website from the same machine, it downloads the correct file format. And he sent us some screenshots. He says, this, these results led me to believe that these sites are interpreting my browser to be on the PC platform and that I'm using a Windows machine. What gives? Great question, Perry. Uh, it's Safari. Safari is masquerading as someone else. I'm not sure how you got it into this state, but I know how to get it out. I think I know how to get it out. If you go in Safari, go to the Safari menu, go to preferences, go to advanced and check the show develop menu in menu bar box. Then you'll get a new menu called the develop menu. In the develop menu, actually, there are all kinds of things that you can do. And one of them, I believe the second from the top is that you can set the user agent. My guess is your user agent is set to a Windows browser. Change it to back to Safari for the Mac. and You should solve this problem. My question, though, and John, maybe you know something about this, is will that be enough to get it to persist for all sessions? Or is it just this one session? And poor Perry's going to have to go back and do this every time. Uh, my suspicion is that, yes, if you change it back, it should persist. Um, yeah, our question, I mean, my, the, the, I was going to say my question to you, but, you know, you didn't do it. Um, but how did it get that way in the first place? Um, you know, it, it's something you can set in the development menu, but it's also something that, you know, a, a, another piece of software uh, could certainly modify. I mean, it's, you know, in some plist file somewhere. For Safari, so how did it get that way in the first place? Is uh, what I'm scratching my head over. Yeah, well, and and my experience with this because I've used the develop menu at times to set the user agent so I could visit a website that would say only work with Internet Explorer, but it doesn't change it for all future sessions. So, or even another window that I open, I have to set it for each window. But I don't know. I don't know. Perry wrote back and said that it worked. So hopefully it stays working. But if not, um, well, actually what I would do is I would go and uh, I'd start either using the, the recently modified files uh, thing in the finder and watch what preference files change and, and then maybe just delete one of those. But uh, But I'm not sure how to get Safari to persist on anything other than I've never been able to get it to persist on anything other than default, which is where 
it says default automatically chosen. But hopefully this fixed it for Perry. If not, well, yeah. Yeah. And dude, there's a dandy site here. So digging into this, um, I, I've done as you have. So um, there may be situations where you want to trick the website you're going to into thinking that you're running on a different browser or different platform or even different screen resolution. Now, why do I say that, you may ask? Well, because there's a whole bunch of information that is sent by your browser to the web server uh, when you make a connection. And how can you see all these values? Well, I found one site here, which I think is pretty cool, and it's called whatsmyuseragent.com. And it shows not only the uh, user agent string, which is typically your browser and your platform, but a whole bunch of other stuff gets sent along, um, such as your screen resolution, uh, things like that. And this is how websites know, for example, that you're coming from you know, a, a full-size screen and they'll render the page a certain way, or you're coming from a teeny little screen like an iPhone and that they should adapt the screen to uh, things like that. And of course, in our case, Dave, I, I believe our... Uh, you know, the platform that we use to publish the website um, uh, expressions uh, does that, right? Expression engine. So. Yeah. Expression engine yeah. um, is smart enough to, to do that. It's like, oh, you're on an iPhone? Well, I'm not going to, you know, display a massively huge page because you can't see it. I'm going to. No, that's not the publishing version. system. That's actually oh, the browser. Okay. So, our, yeah, most websites, and, and this is how it should be done, uh, are designed where the browser essentially gets to decide and what it's called. The term for that is responsive design mode. So we have uh, in our style sheets in our cast, in our CSS files, we have descriptions, if you will, of what the page should look like at different widths. And you can see this if you go and visit TMO and, and, and grab your, uh, you know, the width, side of your of your browser and just start shrinking it down you'll get below a point it'll sort of break for a second and then it totally relays out the page and starts looking like what it would look like on an iphone and that that's called responsive web design and what's even cooler in the safari develop menu in el capitan i don't believe i'm checking that this exists no it doesn't uh it does not exist in anything prior to el capitan but in the develop menu the fourth thing down is enter responsive design mode. And what's cool about this is at the top of the screen, it shows you uh, many different Apple devices and you can pick which one you want to emulate inside Safari. You can also sort of change it on your own. It changes the user agent to your point, John, in case your web engine is the one doing the, the smarts or uh, and it also changes the size, uh, the, the window size that it sends or that it processes the CSS with. And so you can go from an iPhone 4S all the way up to an iPad Pro and see what your website or any website uh, would look like on this. So, yeah, the development is kind of cool. And that that responsive design mode is super helpful when uh, when we're you know making a tweak to the site or something. It's like, wait, is this going to break on the iPhone? Nope. Looks awesome. Or, whoop, yep, it does. All right, let's fix it. So, yeah, fun stuff. Okay. But are you saying that the but the web server knows the, nothing? The, the, so is it the style shit? 
Because, yeah. I mean, part of it is based on the user agent or it reporting, okay, this is my resolution, dude, so, you know, please. Well, it's not, it, it does report it. We can pull that, or we can pull that information with JavaScript, but with Mac Observer, the server is doing none. It's sending the same thing to everyone. And it's up to the client to lay out the page the right way. Give it with the instructions that we've given it. But, but everybody gets the instructions for everything because it's far more efficient to do it that way. And that's how okay. most of the, that's how most of the web runs. Now, again, you know, back to Perry's question, the things he's running into are where the web is, is, is doing this server responsive thing again, where, you know, it's going to, it's going to redirect you to a, a windows download page versus a Mac download page. That's a, absolutely appropriate way and place to to use the user agent to direct the user to the right spot it's it's very smart but in terms of of responsive design let the client do it oh okay yeah. so the client is is rendering it correct based on okay because sometimes i've seen some sites will have like an m dot well that's another that's, method i think which it's is the, kind of crude absolutely the wrong way to do it yeah, because then what happens is if you, you know, yeah, if you go visit a website, I think iMore does this and I like those guys, but, and they know they're doing it wrong and they're, they're actually working on it, but uh, <laughs> well, no, 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 I've talked to them about it, but um, yeah, they, you know, when you visit one of their pages on the iPhone, I think it used to be this way. Maybe they've rolled out the change. Maybe they haven't, but um, it redirects from www dot, you know, in this case, iMore.com slash, you know, whatever page name dot HTML. It redirects to m.imore.com slash whatever page name.html. And that does deliver two separate things. And it's a disaster because if you're on your iPhone and you share that link with me, I go and load the mobile page on my Mac and now it looks funky or it's redirecting around too many times. It's just too much work. That's what that's the whole point of responsive web design is just give the user right. the choice. And and that's why you can with TMO take your browser window and, and sort of, you know, rake the size back and forth and it'll, your browser relays it out. It's not pulling, uh, might be pulling some different data from, um, from the okay. site. Cause we're doing lazy loads and that sort of thing to keep bandwidth down. All right. So Cause sometimes I'll see that like in my Twitter feed, somebody will post the URL to something and yeah. it's M dot Yahoo or M dot whatever. And when I look at it on, you know, my, my, uh, you know, full size screen Mac, it's like, Oh, that doesn't look quite right. It sucks. Okay. That's why. That's yeah. why. Yeah, they're doing it wrong. Responsive is a better way to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a fun little detour. Good stuff. Nice to get back into the geek of things. Um, let's go. Let's stick with Safari. And let's go to Joe. If I can find Joe's question, which I can. Joe asks, is there a way to get rid of certain links that come up when you start typing in the URL bar at the top of Safari? In mail, there's the past recipients menu item, which allows you to get rid of specific past recipients. I'd like this for Safari. In this case, I slightly renamed a site, but when I start to type it in to get at it, the old name continues to be displayed first. I'm guessing that clearing history would do this, but I'd rather not clear all of my history, just that one reference. Uh, you're right. History is part of where it gets this. Uh, it's pulling from your history as well as your bookmarks when you start typing in Safari's URL bar. So you're right that you can, if you go to the history menu in Safari, you can go down to the bottom and choose clear history. But again, like you pointed out, you lose everything. But if you go to history and show history, you can get everything that you've seen. 
and you can scroll through and see all the things in all the days and you can slowly painstakingly through look through every day to find it or you can look in the lower right hand corner and use the search box to pinpoint it down and then from here you can surgically remove the one that you want or don't want as the case may be that should do it remove it i believe you would right click on it and choose remove yeah i think actually you can just highlight it and hit delete but but you're right yeah either way yep that's right yeah yeah thank you for following up on that (laughs) i left i left the important part out that's right yeah yeah it's handy because it usually yeah i mean almost always uh, i find this feature useful you know especially if it's like wow you know i i I went to a, a web page on this site but i don't remember the exact url so it's uh, it's good for that, but sometimes it's not. So yeah, and that history um, syncs with iCloud. So if you like, it, it, you know, we were talking about um, I don't know, we were talking about something in the pre-show, folks that we'd seen it at MacWorld, and I'm like, or at MacWorld at CES, and uh, I'm still burned out here from traveling, <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, oh yeah, I can't remember Shelly Yakis's last name, and I don't know why because. It's a producer that I've seen on, you know, countless albums that I own and I get to meet him because he's got a cool product that I'm sure we'll talk about and the cool stuff found it either today or at some point. But uh, I knew I had looked him up because I'm like, oh, did he produce that? You know, Tom Petty? Yep, that's the guy. Okay, And uh, but I had looked him up from my phone on the, you know, on the floor of whatever event it was, Showstoppers or Pepcom or something. And uh, and sure enough, it was like, oh, yeah, there it is. You know, it came right up on my Mac here in, in the studio, which is cool. But. There's security implications of that too, if you care. So um, that's what private browsing is for. One of the things. So. Anyway, that's uh, yeah, that's how it works. Shall we move on? Indeed. All right. Moving on to Andrew. Andrew asks: Before Apple introduced the family sharing Lark. There wasn't a better way to share calendar contacts and notes with my wife. So I did a hack. I created an iCloud account and imported our calendar and address book in the named family account. And on each of our iPhones, I pointed to that iCloud account to access the calendar. So far, so good. We can share everything. When my wife changes an appointment on the calendar, it reflects on mine. The annoying thing is now Siri thinks I'm my wife or vice versa. If I appoint myself in the address book to identify who I am in the phone with the quote unquote me record. So my question, is there a best way to hop on board the Apple family sharing Lark? So, yes, um, I think. Calendars, if it's truly only calendars that you want to share, you don't even need family sharing to do that. John and I share our calendar, uh, not all of our calendars, but, but we can choose which ones to share. And we're not part of the same family sharing plan. Uh, Apple's calendar servers that run uh, CalDAV support that fully and it's great. And when John makes a change to our Mac Geekab calendar, I see it immediately and, and vice versa. But if you want to share contacts and notes currently, the only way to do that is by what you've done here. However, I think the problem is that you're sharing your calendars, contacts and notes with an iCloud account, and you're both using that as either the primary or the only account that's syncing contacts specifically. It's contacts that's your that's your problem with with uh, Siri. 
But if you either make that, so with iCloud, you can add more than one iCloud account to your, um, to your iPhone or, or to your Mac. There's one that's designated as the primary. That one should not be the account that you share. So you should set up individual accounts for you and your wife. And then all three of those accounts, including the one that you have been using, that's sort of the shared account should be baked into your family plan. So that's, um, that that's step one. And then your main, the, the accounts that are specific to you and your wife should be the main ones on your, on your devices. And then you should add the one that's sharing contacts and, and notes and maybe calendar. If you need to do that still, uh, in, in that one, but make sure. And we did. And, and so Andrew actually, we shared this advice with Andrew and he wrote back and he said, I'm doing that, but it's still doing, it's still, you know, killing me on this, on this contact sharing thing. And the issue is that the only contacts that Andrew and his wife were syncing with iCloud were from this other account. They weren't syncing anything from their own named accounts. So you need to sync from your own named accounts, even if it's only one record and it's you and don't set a quote unquote me record in the shared account that's synced only set a me record in the account for you to, and that should solve this problem because it is the only way to share contacts and notes currently. Although we have been informed that, the, the new notes engine in Yosemite, or sorry, in El Capitan and in, in iOS nine has the ability to do syncing with multi-user at, at its core, but there's nothing in the UI to support that yet. So that's what I got on that one, John. Okay. What do you got? I got nothing on that. Well, all right, then, uh, then we can, I don't have these problems. I'm, I'm just me. You're just you. And, and I don't, I, and I don't like to share. That's right. Although we do share a calendar and, and so far we, we've, uh, well, we haven't killed each other over it. Reluctantly. We'll, uh, That's right. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's do another quick one. I believe with Kelly, uh, Kelly asks, I have an aggravation for which I cannot seem to find a solution. I'm running the latest version of El Capitan. I use the finder a lot for files. Uh, I have loads of files with names longer than the column in which they are listed. Each time I open a finder window for a particular folder, I have to manually go through the right size, this column action to see the full file names. Isn't there some way to automatically tell the finder to right size this column for all the folders I open? I've looked through keyboard maestro and just finder preferences, but can't find anything. So good question, Kelly. I, in theory, if you open a finder window that's in list view uh, and change the width of a given column, in this case, the file name column, and then immediately close that window without doing anything else, then that should remain the default width of that column for all new finder windows. That's, that's been my experience, at least on El Capitan when I was testing this. Um, it, I, I did prep this show at uh, 35,000 feet or thereabouts because uh because Southwest Wi-Fi is so appropriately priced. It, it's eight bucks for the day, no matter how many flights you have. It's brilliant. So I did that uh, from, the, uh, from the plane, and, and their tray tables are big enough so that I could actually do it with my 11-inch air. But yeah, that's, um, that should do it. it, it 
you know, you might need to do the whole force quit the finder thing. Like we talked about three or four episodes ago that, uh, that, that kind of kickstarted that for me on my iMac in the office. But, but now that's how it, that's how it behaves. Have you seen, have you seen that John? No. Okay. Okay. Does that, does it work for you that way? If you resize, if you open a window, resize the column, close the window. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it does. And actually okay. no. And I got something to toss in here. So uh, it, it could be that something deep within your uh, setup is not right. And if it ain't right, um, one place you may want to go, uh, you know, of course, be careful, but our pal Onyx here has a uh, option. So in Onyx, parameters, finder, there's a little, a handy little button here that says restore defaults. Um, it could be that your finder configuration is somehow whack. So um, hmm. doing this may, may get you back to, to normal. You could also, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it whacks or re reconstitutes a plist file or something but that's one way if your finder is is uh acting up you, you may want to uh onyx may be able to bring you back to a known state that's a good idea i had forgotten or maybe i didn't even know that that option existed in onyx it's a great program i was, I was looking for it just uh just because it, this is what it sounded like you know the, the unexpected uh finder behavior yeah man you know, it, it's funny. I um, talking about Onyx. I always send out notes to companies uh, or people whose products or services that we mention in the show. Uh, it's just good PR, and I actually a it's good PR. But b they also many of them tend to tend to listen back at least to the segment in which we mentioned them and offer other you know additional details or, or perhaps corrections or clarifications. So it's great. I have to skip Onyx and, and I limit them to only once every three months because if I told right. them every time they'd get emails from us every week. So, so that's one of those pieces. And also I don't always list them in the show notes, even though they're mentioned just because yeah, it's, it's kind of repetitive. Um, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. reason I, the reason I chuckled uh, earlier was um, you, you may have seen this, but our, our, our good friend uh, Jeff Gamut uh, sent a picture of his tray table on his flight, one of his flights. And yeah. he, it was literally, it was, literally the size of his boarding pass i don't know what airline it was or what plane but i i, I, I was just cracking up that was frontier frontier it was yeah. like no i mean it really it was it was a, a little larger than his boarding pass I'm like, that's right why even bother well um, you know you have to understand though frontier takes that concept <laughs> that was used or that is used like it's it's that european concept of of that uh, was pioneered, I believe pioneered by Ryanair, certainly made very popular by Ryanair, which is the idea. And Spirit Airlines here in the U.S. also does this where it's it's very no frills. Right. And and so every frill that you might want, you pay for <laughs> other than a larger tray table, which is just not an option. But the seats are <laughs> a little bit more crammed. You pay to reserve a seat. You pay to bring a carry on with you. You pay to bring luggage in, you know, to store luggage. So both are charged for uh, you pay more yeah. for an aisle seat versus a window seat. If you want a drink or a pillow uh, on the plane, you pay for that mm -hmm. too. But it, but their fares are like their base fares are ridiculously cheap. I, I mean, I think he oh, can do a round trip. Go. Yeah. I think he can do a round trip from, from Denver to Vegas for 
oftentimes it, it, the, again, the base fare is less than a hundred dollars round trip, but it, you're, you know, that that's if he's willing to not have to check a bag and not need to bring a carry on and, uh, and not, you know, reserve a seat ahead of time. You just get on and, and, you know, whatever seat you might be able to find. But again, you know, if that's okay for it, it's a short flight. It's an hour and a half for this trip. Obviously he needs more luggage than that. But if he was going to do a day trip to Vegas, well, now that starts to be really practical. So, and, and that's, and that's that whole Ryanair philosophy. And uh, now the other thing that I noticed, and this was kind of cool. This is the first time I run into this. So I, I flew United and at least for my longer flight, they actually had free in-flight entertainment via your device. Southwest so I could actually connect. Yeah. Okay. But I could connect via Wi-Fi and they actually had like first, uh, like current movies that, that I could stream. Now, of course, you know, as, as you know, I didn't bring my headphones, so right. I wasn't able to take advantage of this, but it was really kind of neat. So you could um, run their app so they would allow you limited access without shelling out any any additional money. So so I didn't you know get full Wi-Fi access. I didn't really need it, but um but I could both run the United app on my iPhone, um and take advantage of the features. And and like I said, they they would offer you uh, entertainment like movies and stuff like that for free, streaming over Wi-Fi, in the uh, uh, you know for no ad- apparent additional cost. Yeah. So, no, it's smart, right? Because South Southwest for years always said they would never do like JetBlue. They would never put screens in the backs of all the seats. But it wasn't that they didn't want to offer the service. It was a weight issue, right? You know, Southwest's whole thing in their whole business is based is predicated on the fact that they were able to secure fuel futures for, you know, like decades that allowed them to, to fly very cheaply. But, you know, they, they, they're very conscious about how much fuel they use as, as are all the airlines and, and putting screens in the back of each seat adds a significant amount of weight to each plane. And so they wouldn't do it, but they did. They followed the same model where, yeah, you can actually watch. I was watching, broadcast tv in my web browser on the southwest plane for for no additional cost the, the wi-fi if you wanted to get out and like you know do things like like prep and research for this show that cost me eight bucks again for the whole day not just for one flight which was you know handy it's good it's smart yeah and actually one of my flights the the one going out um they actually did have uh the, the plane i was on actually did have the screen in the back and and actually, it was an annoyance because I actually had to ask the, uh, I couldn't quite see the the buttons on the uh, armrest, and I'm like, I wanted to get some sleep, and I'm like, how do I turn this damn screen off? <laughs> and she directed me to the uh, because it was on, and you know, it was it was kind of disturbing my 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 slumber there. Um, so she showed me which button uh, to turn the brightness all the way down. Sure, and, and yeah, and the other thing is, you know, the cost of having a screen on the back of each, uh, you know. Not cheap. No, it's more to maintain. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Hey, uh, while we're here, John, I want to talk about our next two sponsors, if that works for you. Okay. All right. Buy smart and sell smart at gazelle.com. I think they can add another word to that. Simple. You visit gazelle.com. You pick whether you want to buy a used phone, sell a used phone. And then you go through the process. They show you what they have or you show them what you have. And it's really, really easy. 
in the time that it takes me to tell you about this, you can go through, get a price for your phone that you want to sell and have a box on its way to you. And none of this costs you anything. In fact, the point is to put money in your pocket, not take it out. So at no point in the process are you laying out cash. Gazelle ships you a box for your charge. You put your phone in the box. You put a label on the box that Gazelle gives you. That's postage on them. You ship it back to them. They've paid for everything so far. Then they get your phone. They make sure that your phone is what you said it was going to be and that you remembered to put it in the box. And then they send you money. That's it. So Gazelle pays for everything, including your phone. And they give you the money for that. They also have some phones that they get in that are in great shape. What do they do with those? They put them back up for sale. So if you're looking for a used iPhone, you can buy a certified pre-owned phone from Gazelle. You got to check this out. Visit gazelle.com. And it's that simple. Through the checkout process, I'll ask where you heard from them. Make sure you choose Mac Geek Gab there. Our thanks to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. You ever feel like you have something to say and you just want everybody to hear it and you want a place where it's going to live forever? That's Squarespace. Squarespace.com slash MGG is where you go to start building your home on the web. That's what I did. My DaveTheNerd.com site lives on Squarespace. Actually, I didn't start it there because when I started it, Squarespace didn't exist. But man, am I happy that they do. In my career publishing things on the web, I've gone, I've run the full gamut. Initially, I built my own content management system and hosted it on my own server that I built using Apache and all of that stuff. That's insane. Uh, Nowadays, especially, but even back then it was insane. Then I went to using somebody else's content management system, WordPress, also on a server that I built on my own. That was also crazy. Now I use Squarespace. It's that simple. I just go and choose my design and put my content in. It even slurped in my content from my old WordPress installation. And now I don't have to think about it because Squarespace takes care of everything. They take care of the servers. They take care of the templates. They take care of everything. It's always up. It's always working and it's super easy to use. And if I want to change the design, I can because Squarespace takes care of all the templates. They always work with the content that I've got in there. Everything happens in my web browser and I don't have to think about any of it. You got to check this out for yourself. Go to squarespace.com MGG. That's where you start. Just pick out a template that you like. Just start messing around. 14 days you get for free where you start tinkering. And when you're ready to publish, You start it up as cheap as eight bucks a month. You got to check it out. Squarespace.com slash MGG. And then when you're ready to buy, use coupon code MGG to save an additional 10%. Already great prices, 10% off. Our thanks to Squarespace. It's squarespace.com slash MGG. Coupon code MGG for sponsoring this episode. John, listener Larry writes, he says, he sent us a link. And it was a uh, Indiegogo project called uh, the USB IDI, the US Biddy. I don't think it's the USB bidet. Uh, the world's most intelligent charger ever is what it's called. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. And he asked a simple question. He says, is this necessary or is it smoke and mirrors? So I took a look 
And this thing's certainly doing well. It's, uh, you know, hit uh, well over a thousand percent of its funding goal. It's got like 380 grand worth of funding at this point in time. And it's all about deserving a better charging experience. And if I read through this correctly, uh, what it's doing, it's it's targeted at Android iOS devices, right? Mobile devices. And what it's doing is it's being smart about stopping the flow of power to the device when the device hits 100%. And we've seen things like this before, John, right? And... And it's true that batteries, once they hit 100%, should not remain on charge for too long. Now, too long, I'm going to leave an asterisk there because that, that's a qual- that, that needs to be qualified. Well, here's the thing. You know, it's always good to keep the electrons flowing either into the battery or out of the battery. It's a good concept to keep in mind. But the way we use our phones is we charge them up. Maybe we charge them overnight. Now, when we say charge overnight, the phone charges in like two hours or less, right? And then uh, it sits for whatever, maybe, maybe six hours if you really get that much sleep. And then you take the phone off charge and you're using it all day. So it's not like you're leaving it for days on end on the charge, like some of us might do with our laptops. That's bad. The days on end at 100%, that's bad. And that's why we recommend a product like fruit juice to remind you, hey, dum-dum, you know, or not dum-dum, but hey, you might not know. Uh, uh, at least for the first time, it's you might not know. Then the second time, it's hey, dum-dum. Uh, unplug your, your, your thing and let the battery be used a little because it's really good for it. We sorted that out on this show years ago. And that's part of why fruit juice exists, frankly. So, but on your phone... It, I mean, I just can't see how many people would be just leaving their phone plugged in a hundred percent of the time. It's just not how it works. The thing's supposed to sit in your pocket, not on your desk. So uh, they are technically a good thing, but completely unnecessary in my opinion. Now that's true right up until we get to USB type C because the new MacBook charges with USB-C. And so you could be in a scenario where you charge too much, right? You leave it on charge too much. And that's where a cable like this might, might help. I have, I actually have some thoughts to share about USB-C, but I'll, we'll, we'll stay, we'll stay in this box for, for a moment, John. Any, any, any thoughts from you about this? Well, about the charger. I mean, we've seen this. So, so the one that you, you and I had both received and, you know, we, we gave it a whirl and actually I still, I still use it because I think it's a you know neat idea, but velvet wire yeah. uh, provided us with one called the power slayer. And then they also have one that I believe uh, is uh, speaking of home kit. I believe the power slayer blue has some home kittiness, if you will, in it. And, uh, yeah, to me, in theory, I mean, you know, the good news about these is you may save pennies because it's not drawing power when it doesn't need to. Sure. So, so in theory, you know, a charger shutting off when whatever it's connected to is done, you know, is either close to or done receiving power is a good idea. It's not a bad idea. Um but, you know, I mean, the amount of power, I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking, you know, pennies, if, if, if even that, that you're going to save from the power that it draws from the wall. So, um, 
So no, I, I you know, again, I, I, I think what they do is kind of a neat idea. Um, whether it's going to change your life or, you know, make your, uh, you know, uh, extend the life of your battery, uh, I, I don't believe significantly, as you pointed out, because most people are not going to leave their device plugged in, you know, for days um, once it's done charging. But if, if you do, then maybe this is a good idea. Then, yeah, right. That, that, that's, a, that's actually fair advice. That's right. Yep. It's good. Hey, so I want to take a minute and and explore this USB C thing because I I didn't grok it when Apple first released the new MacBook with the lone USB C port that's used for everything, including power. It made me scratch my head a little bit, right? Like, uh, what are they doing here? And I've heard some people. In fact, we've even got folks in the chat room saying, "Well, USB C actually helps solve this problem because with just one port, you're going to be forced to use the battery." more often because you're going to have to unplug your charger to plug in, say, you know, a USB-C hard drive. And, and certainly that's true. Uh, but I don't think that was Apple's MO with moving to USB-C. It, it, it is a byproduct for some people with some products out there, with some, you know, uh, third-party products. But I saw some things at CES that, that really sort of blew me away about why USB-C. And now I'm totally on board with, with the whole USB-C thing. One was a Lassie, uh, hard drive. It's a desktop hard drive. Uh, it has its own wall wart. It's got its own power. It's a, you know, full size hard drive in a nice Lassie case. And in fact, it was their Porsche hard drive. So it was more than a nice Lassie case. It was a gorgeous Lassie case. And it had a wall wart going to the wall to power it and a single USB-C cable running from it to your Mac. Um, this cable not only would provide data to the hard drive, but would also pass power through to your Mac. So suddenly it was this vision of a dock, right? With one cable where you plug in this cable when you get to your desk. And not only are you connected to the hard drive that you need to be connected to, not only are you connected to power that you need to be connected to, right? It's all one thing now, which means even you just get to your desk, you plug in for power, you're connected to your hard drive. Time machine can start, right? Those types of things. And it was like, oh, I get it now. I was totally sold. That was like day one of, of being in Vegas for me because I had a meeting with, with Lassie and Seagate really, really early. Then at one of the events, I saw the, the Ventive folks who make cables and battery packs. They made a battery pack, you know, like iPhone battery packs. We talk about them all the time. They, they're, they're one of the good ones. You know, they, they make good stuff. Uh, it's reliable, works really well, solid. Well, they have a USB-C battery pack they were showing us. And not only would this charge, say, a phone that uses USB-C, which I'm sure is coming to our Apple-centric world at some point, but it would charge your MacBook. So you can carry a battery pack with you. And they have like a 15,000 milliamp hour battery pack, which isn't huge, right? You know, it's about the size of a, you know, an iPhone uh, six plus. And now you can, you know, top off or, or recharge your MacBook with a battery pack. This is a problem that's been very difficult to solve uh, in the past with laptops. So it's like, ah, okay. Without getting, without getting sued by Apple. Yeah. Without getting sued by Apple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then there was actually. People had to hack them together to put a mag safe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. And, and there, you know, for people that like the MagSafe concept, Griffin 
actually had a a little thing, and I forget the name of it because uh, I didn't prep it to talk about here. But it, it's a little it, a extender, if you will, that you plug into the USB C port on your MacBook, and it's only twelve millimeters uh, long, so it sticks out a little bit, and it has a MagSafe type connection uh, on it. So if somebody yanks the cable, it just you know, disconnects like MagSafe does. So if you like MagSafe, you can actually go to Griffin and and get this thing. And it's just USB-C on both ends and you plug it into whatever you want. So it's very, very interesting to me seeing, you know, seeing these third party uses of USB-C. I'm totally, totally on board um, with it and, and started thinking about, all right, you know, my MacBook Air is three oh three and a half years old this might be the year of of macbooks here in the hamilton household so well i dig it because you know i got i gotta say honestly it annoys me that apple's that, that getting power to your uh, apple devices uh tends to get into a proprietary realm you know yeah whether it be lightning or magsafe um i mean i get why apple does it because you know, they want to aggravate people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they want to be, they think they can do it better. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's interesting where we're, where we're going with all this. And I like it. It's good. So, you know, we'll, uh, I, we'll, we'll, that'll be another, another concept to talk about. All right. Uh, where are we here, John? Well, while we're, yeah, we'll go to Andrew. Why not? We're, while we're, while we're prognosticating here, Andrew says, uh, Dave, you are a self-confessed speaker snob, and I would appreciate your views. I'm certainly an audio snob. That's for sure, which makes me a speaker snob. Uh, it could also be an issue for wider investigation. Yeah. Okay. He says, uh, I'm wondering about the future of AirPlay third-party speakers. I wonder if they are endangered. I've had Bose speakers for over 20 years, and I love the sound, look, and build quality. Today, I have a Bose Solo for the TV, quiet comfort, two headphones, two pairs of in-ear buds, and a Bluetooth earpiece. He said, for my home sound, I was using the Apple iPod Hi-Fi with my AirPort Express, uh, but at 8 to 10 years old, I thought they needed retirement, so I sold them on eBay, uh, and I love AirPlay. I can play on multiple speakers and everything is in sync. It is way better than Bluetooth in terms of pure audio quality. But more importantly, AirPlay, AirPlay quarantines the phone and computer sounds from the audio output. You can get the pure audio and not system sounds like messages, mail, alerts, and other dings, beeps, and buzzes. This drives me mad with Bluetooth. So I got rid of the iPod Hi-Fi and uh, with a view of getting the Bose SoundTouch one-piece wireless speakers and uh, kidding out of the house. He read something. He says, however, the series three of the Bose SoundTouch 20 and 30 and the new SoundTouch 10 don't support AirPlay. Bose says AirPlay is no longer supported on the latest version of our SoundTouch products. Series three existing series one and two products will continue to support it as before. While there are many different motivators for this change, we can explore one or two of them here. Apple's restrictions on AirPlay require that audio from your iOS mobile device be sent only to a single speaker at a time. 
We heard frustrations about this from many customers who wanted to expand the play and play their music on several speakers at once, but we were unable to make changes to AirPlay as a proprietary Apple technology. Uh, Android and Windows users also don't have access to AirPlay, and they go on and they say, while AirPlay is uh, being discontinued, we've added Bluetooth support and a unique Bluetooth rebroadcast function that will allow a wider base of users to, users to stream music to multiple speakers simultaneously. And so uh, Andrew went and found some old series one and two speakers and is running those. But he says it made him wonder about the future of AirPlay. <clears throat> and you're right. Um, AirPlay, it has great audio quality. It is, uh, it allows for lossless audio to be sent. But it, um, it's proprietary Apple. And, you know, you don't get multiple <clears throat> You don't get multiple platforms included when you build AirPlay support. So I, I saw quite a few AirPlay ready speakers this week. But, you know, the thing is, in, in a general sense, Wi-Fi speakers are a difficult thing to do well. I, um, I live this life uh, because I became a Sonos fan years ago. They do it right uh, with Wi-Fi speakers. But I wind up getting pitched on more speakers than you want to know about. And... I don't talk about most of them here because they're crap and it's difficult to get the software right to do all of this stuff. Bluetooth has a lot of it built in and there's companies that are pushing that along. But as you pointed out, you know, Bluetooth doesn't allow for lossless audio. A lot of people don't care about that. And if they're using the right audio codecs, even with Bluetooth, you probably won't notice, uh, in most cases, in some you will. So, yeah, AirPlay is, um, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of third-party support from AirPlay. One thing I will point out, though, you were complaining about sending Bluetooth sound from your Mac because even if the quality is good enough, which in some cases it might be, you still get all your system sounds and everything. That's true, but you could use, you could set your system, your, 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 your default sound output to the internal speakers and then set, uh, use something like audio hijack to grab iTunes and send it only to your Bluetooth sound output device. I mean, the sound system preference pane allows you to set a different interface for sound effects. If you go into system preferences, sound and go to sound effects, you can say play sound effects through and by default it's on the selected sound output device, but you can change that. And I recommend you do, and that might be enough for you, but if it's not, you can have it just grab iTunes, you use audio hijack or something like that, which, which can take audio and route it wherever you want and have it hijack the audio from say iTunes and then send that directly to your Bluetooth speakers. And you don't, and you'd still leave your sound output preferences to set to, uh, you know, your internal speakers or wherever you prefer to have that stuff go. One thing I will point out while we're talking about Bluetooth audio, this is less of an issue with Wi-Fi audio. Um, there's a delay with Bluetooth audio because it is compressed. So it needs to be compressed, sent, and then decompressed on the other end before it can be played. That introduces a delay. It's very slight, but it's enough of a delay that you pretty much can't use Bluetooth audio speakers for a Skype connection or any kind of like FaceTime or anything like that. It, um, 
it, the delay winds up causing all sorts of echo and that sort of thing. If you have Bluetooth headphones, it works fine because your headphones aren't feeding back into the mic. But um, but all the kind of speakerphone technology relies on the audio coming out of the speakers the moment the computer sends it and and it blocks it that way. So anyway, that's um, that's my thoughts on that. But you use AirPlay, John, right? Some used to. And for those who are wondering what we're talking about, so AirPlay is Apple's method of sending audio wirelessly. Right. And right now, the two solutions that I use within my household is one, I have an Airport Express with some speakers hooked up to it. And right now, that Airport Express, that's its only purpose in life. I, I no longer use it as a Wi-Fi extension. I just use it as an AirPlay destination. And my other is my Apple TV. Um, and I'll use them on occasion. I, I would say I use the Express hooked to uh, to my dandy uh, Audio Engine A5s um, more often than I, I send the audio to the uh, Apple TV. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, another case, you know, like I said before, of Apple thinking they can do it better. But um, no, nah, I dig it when, when I, you know, when I need to use it, it's, uh, you know, it's nice and reliable. Yeah. Yeah, that's about all I got to say about that. Third party, I've yeah, honestly, I've never you know searched for. Uh, We've talked about it. That, I, I, that, that Arc yeah, speaker I, that I, I mentioned. I use Apple device. Is mm-hmm. AirPlay? You know, and it works. I mean, it's great because you get lossless audio, and it, it you know it works. But it, it's not. It, it's one speaker. You're not pairing it with others and and that sort of thing. And in fact, I saw a new speaker from Arc, the Arc Mini. Uh, which looks a lot like that Arc One, which is sort of that rocket ship, three hundred sixty degree speaker that we talked about recently. The Arc mm-hmm. Mini does the same thing, but no Wi-Fi because, well, for many reasons, but I'm sure one of them is that because they built it to be paired with another one of itself to do stereo sound, and you can't do that easily or even at all with AirPlay. So there you go. Yeah, but to me, not an issue. I, you know, use Apple's endpoint, whether it be an Airport Express or an Apple TV, and then just, you know, get normal speakers. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, right. But, but they're, they're wired speakers is, is the problem. You can't do sure. a wireless stereo pair with AirPlay. And, you know, depending on how far apart you want your speakers, that may be a desirable thing. So, yeah, it's tough. It's, um, uh, it's why Sonos owns 90-whatever, 2% of the wireless speaker market, or the in-home wireless speaker market, because they're the only ones that do it right. And it's because they've been doing it for a long time, and they're obsessive about it. They're like Apple. It, you know, it's, it's not an accident that they've gotten it right. It's a series of accidents that they've corrected for over the years, and, you know, that's how you learn. That's how you do stuff. Um, before we wrap up today, John, there are a couple of cool things found that I want to go through. Cool stuffs. Cool stuffs found. Is that is that the right way to uh, to say that? Cool stuffs found. Anyway, uh, I promised this, so I don't want to skip it, and or I don't want to get too long winded with other things. So we will go and start with Leon, who says. HomeKit has a lot of promise for easy automation, including Siri control. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of compatible devices yet, although many showed up at CES. Plus, bleeding-edge enthusiasts already have invested in other technologies like Z-Wave and Insteon and Nest and things like that. 
He says, enter cool stuff found number one. It's called Homebridge. Homebridge is a service that runs on Unix, which means it can run on the Mac, of course, that allows many non-HomeKit devices to talk to HomeKit. The service handles the HomeKit connection and supports plugins that let you connect all sorts of devices. It gives us a list. Yamaha and Denon AV receivers, Apple script, which means you can trigger scripts with HomeKit, Raspberry Pi, the NetApp mobile weather station, LiftMaster garage doors, iControl, which is Xfinity Home, Sonos, Sony TV, SSH, Nest, Hue, and Indigo Home Automation. He said this is cool stuff found number two. Indigo is a HomeBridge plugin that connects the Mac-based Indigo automation platform to HomeKit. He says, for me, I have a bunch of Insteon switches as well as home theater equipment integrated into the Indigo app. This is the app that is the really the only game in town or the best game in town, certainly for doing home automation control from your Mac. They have an iOS app. Your Mac can run a server and it's awesome, right? You can script everything, but it's, you know, it's not HomeKit. Well, this makes it HomeKit. So all the things you have connected to Insteon, all your Z-Wave and, or sorry, to Indigo, like your Z-Wave and Insteon and all that stuff that you've had for 10 years, now all of a sudden works with HomeKit. He says, what does this mean? Well, I can do things like say, uh, hey Siri, watch TV. This causes the whole house audio to be turned off. My home theater equipment comes on and the lights in the TV room dim to viewing level. The possibilities are endless. It says, too bad the time I have to play with it isn't. So that's called Homebridge, and it is a uh, a free thing uh, available on uh, GitHub, and there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff. So this is this is cool uh, for those of you who are Synology users that can run Synology's new Docker, which builds kind of encapsulated apps or environments in, in which you can run single apps on the Synology. There are people working and and using a Docker of Homebridge. So you don't even have to leave a Mac on. You can let your Synology do this. So this is very, very cool. Um, Solving that problem that we talked about at the beginning of the show, where you've got all these technologies, some of which don't even really fall into the home automation category category, but kind of do. And Homebridge ties them all together and it's open. I believe it's open source. It's, It's available on GitHub. So it's, Available for free with active development. So this is cool, John. I think I think I know I'm going to be messing with this. And my guess is you will be, too. I'd like to because, you know, the, the thing is now HomeKit. I mean, we keep talking about it and we mentioned that, you know, there's a, you know, at least I saw and you saw a lot of stuff at uh, CES that was HomeKit compatible. I'm not really happy with the way Apple's rolled it out because, for example, I don't have a HomeKit program to run. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. It, 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 it's, uh, I mean, maybe that's their Apple's intent is that you know it's more an API or you know a way for developers to integrate their products and make them accessible, and it's not meant for you to have a HomeKit app that well, you, you run. You so sort of that was do. kind of my expectation. I mean, right now, I don't have anything I can run and say, show me all my HomeKit compatible devices. Yep. Yep. So, so again, it's kind of, you know. A, a well, you do. I mean, you have. From, you, or I may, and I just don't know it. Yeah, it's on your iPhone. Um, 
I'm looking to find where it is because I don't use it. But but there is a you know HomeKit thing I believe in settings on your iPhone. I should know this. Yeah, really? yeah. yeah. If you go into settings, it's um I don't know a page or two down. It's in the section. It's at the bottom of the section where mail contacts and calendars starts. It right above the section where music starts. And you go into HomeKit. You create a home. You invite people to it. And this is where you know it's using your um. It's, it's your phone that that allows you to control the stuff, but it's it's limited. To be fair, you know, I'm I'm not seeing it. Seriously, uh, seriously, did, did you say mail in in the uh, section of settings that has mail contacts and right? calendars? So it's mail contacts, calendars, notes, reminders, notes, phone, reminders, phone messages, yada 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 yada, yada news, and HomeKit. Uh, I don't, I don't have that probably because I don't have any home kit devices. Your Apple TV should show up there. That's weird. Huh? No, it's not. We'll have to dig into that as to why home kit wouldn't show up on iOS. Well, I have the older, maybe it's cause I have the older Apple TV. I don't know. Maybe the third gen, what do I have? The third gen? Maybe it's not home kitty. Huh? Maybe that's not the place yeah. you go to set it up. I thought it was. At least for me, it's not. But, you know, it could be the same thing. Like we talked about this earlier is uh, I noticed that um, for whatever reason, I had not had my uh, certificates installed on my iPhone. Guess, well, that's you know, just because you, you got a new iPhone insert, inserts aren't restored from a backup. Yeah. Right. But the thing is, I didn't see profile. Same thing. It, 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 you know, the menu choice just wasn't there. Sure. Because you hadn't added didn't one. Have any certificates. Right. Right. Yeah. I see so what you're saying. I'm suspecting yeah, yeah, yeah. the same thing is true here is that my phone, at least my phone, is not detecting any HomeKit compatible devices. It's so because it you haven't run any HomeKit apps. And, and right. that's what would happen. As soon as you run an app, whether or not you have the device to go along with it, it your phone will say, hey, all right, you know, now we've got to set up a, mm-hmm. a home. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's all it is. I guess makes sense that yep. they're not showing me an option for something I don't have. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I just got to get get with the program and get some HomeKit devices. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to get there on my network. Yep. So, um, is anybody listening? Just send me HomeKit stuff. There you go. Please. Sure. <laughs> you can. You know, <laughs> you can go to like Amazon and they'll send you stuff too. Um. All right. Oh well. Yeah. Sure. All right, so let's move. Let's move on. Okay, so a uh, let's move to Brett here. If I can find Brett, uh, Brett says so. Every often for nostalgia, I turn on my old iMac G three, uh, the summer two thousand one edition, running OS ten ten point four, which has survived a lightning strike, etc., etc. But as but lately, as I'm sure you know, Safari 3.0 is extremely long in the tooth and rarely works with current internet standards. So I started looking for another browser that would work. I stumbled on something called 10.4Fox, available at floodgap.com. It's basically a port of Firefox for older Macs running PowerPC to be able to use the internet. So far, it's great, and it works with the site I sites I frequent. Thanks, Brett. That's, uh, that's what Cool Stuff Found is about. Ten four Fox. Thanks, man. Wow. I know. And I thought I was stuck in the past. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Of um, course, if you're real hardcore, yeah, run links. Links oh, well. is, is, I mean, uh, yeah, text only browser. That's L Y N X, I believe. That is hardcore. <laughs> uh, James shares with us a cool stuff found. He found actually over on Tech Review, which is MGG Jim's site, and uh, it's an article that shows how to replace the login screen wallpaper on El Capitan with something of your choosing. So we will put that in the show notes too. It's good stuff. I like it. I like all this stuff. It's, um, it keeps it fun because that's how we do it. Ready? Moving on. Ready, Freddie. Okay. Uh, Greg shares with us something that's called Dimmies. Uh, no, not Denny's, just Dimmies. He says, uh, I heard you on the last show talking about the bright light that uh, was burning through your eyes from the monoprice box in front of the TV and how you used black tape to block the light. Well, Dimmies is the alternative. You can use these on many electronic devices, not just cable boxes. And it's cool. They um, will put a link in the show notes, but they have. It, they're little stickers is what they are, and they're built to let a little bit of the light through, but not much. And you can buy them specifically for certain cable boxes. They've kind of, you know, made a cutout that fits everything in. Or uh, you can just buy them in like little circles or squares and, and sort of place them, uh, you know, as you want. But, but they, they certainly make them so that you can just, you know, put one sticker across the front and it's got everything for it, for your specific box. So, you know, maybe a little nicer looking than, than just black tape. So we'll put dimmies in the, uh, in the show notes because... That's what we do. That's what we do. We do. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, and I found an article here that, uh, I will share. It is how to stop Apple photos from auto launching in OS 10 with one command. And it's a terminal command, you know, and, and it's for, if you're annoyed that every time you plug, uh, you know, a device, or a memory card in and photos launches, you can disable it. Cause what happens is it launches photos and then you can tell photos don't launch for this device ever again, but it's a pain in the neck. If you wind up putting different devices on, especially if it's different memory cards or things like that. So there's a, a defaults, right? Command that says basically uh, disable hot plug. And, uh, and that, that takes care of it. So we'll put, we'll put that link in, uh, in the show notes too, because you know, that's how we roll. You got anything, uh, you got anything else to, to share here, John today? No, I think I'm, uh, well, it's a good news. Bracing myself for disaster. That's, uh, coming to our town here. What, what disaster is coming to your town? Oh, I just got a notification that we're getting flooding and power outages. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Too much rain. Not enough snow. Yeah. I wish we could send some of it to uh, our friends in California, but Although, I understand they're, they're getting a little bit of They've that, been getting a little. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right now. Yeah. 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 They had, well, they had some flooding while we were at CES. San Diego had a real problem. Yeah, I've always, you know, I've always wondered about that. You know, when we got parts of the country here that have too much water and then parts of the country that don't, 
Yeah. Can we make like a water pipeline or something? I'm, I'm being totally serious. No, I, I'm with you. I, I think um, I think we'd screw that up, too. Um, well, I, I don't and I don't say that in, in like a snarky way. I just say that, you know, it's really difficult messing with nature. Um, I, you know, I had a house on a hill uh, right. The, the house I lived in right before we started the show. So 10 years ago. And, you know, when the snow would it was in Connecticut. So we'd get lots of snow throughout the winter. And then when the snow would melt, there would be a river coming down the hill at the house. And, and mm. you know, the, the house would flood. And actually, the guy who owned it previous to us had cut a French drain and, and, and done some interesting things. And we did a little bit more to run, kind of just to divert the water. But, you know, it's really difficult messing with Mother Nature. And, and so to, to take on something at a large scale, like moving water from you know thousands of miles away across the country and doing it across a mountain range or two it starts getting interesting um yeah yeah but you know all. i mean like i said pipeline i mean we do it with oil you know it seems it's to true. work out for the most part it's true yeah 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 i know it's just uh you know it's something interesting to consider hey but that's how we roll we do, we, we do these interesting things, and hopefully we don't screw things up in the process. But, you know. And Dave, I'm going to tell you how I roll. The way I roll is that when I have a problem or cool stuff found or just any sort of issue in my life, I'd like to send an email to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I believe you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. My friend, you heard me correctly. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's awesome. Tool 6666-GEEK is the number you can call if you want to call in. And John, GEEK is? 4335. And we would love, I'll ask one more time, and then we'll let it go for the rest of the month. But please go make a comment in iTunes about Mac Geek Gab. We can't reply to them there, but it really helps uh, to help keep things kind of fresh and promoted over there. It looks good when potential new listeners come in to see recent reviews and it does get the attention or help get the attention of the folks at Apple that decide which shows to feature. All of that is good for us. It's good for you. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to see 15 new reviews this week. And I know it's tough, uh, but I, but you guys can do it. If each of you does it, we're going to hit way more than 15. That's for darn sure. It doesn't take much of your time, and I'd really, really appreciate it. So you can do that for me uh, and John, and and it really does help the community here. So that's And I think it gets us on the hot list. It can help. Like Red Fishbone. Like Red Fishbone. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So leave us a review. We will see it. Nobody knows who that is. We use a service called My Podcast Reviews, and any podcasters out there should use it um, because it lets us see reviews from around the world as opposed to just in in the U.S. So we will see it, even if you're in another country than we are or a different country than we are. Uh, We'll still see the reviews. They they show up for us when we we suss them out. So please, please do that for us. Uh, And I will thank you. I thank you in advance. I also thank Cashfly in advance. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace this month includes, as we mentioned in the show, Gazelle at Gazelle.com, of course, where you can sell off your old stuff. Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash geek. 
iMazing at iMazing.com, where coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Squarespace.com slash MGG, where MGG saves you 10%. The folks at MaxSales.com, other world computing. Barebones software at barebones.com. Casper at casper.com slash MGG. You save 50 bucks. And of course, the awesome folks at Bombic software, bombic.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 10%. Folks, between now and the next time I talk to you, I'm going to have traveled by air to Mexico and back. Hopefully, I won't get caught. Made up.